John chapter 10. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. John chapter 10, I'll begin reading at verse 31. Verse 31 of John chapter 10, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works." so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, Yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Please be seated. Father, this is your word. The living and enduring word of God, according to the Apostle Peter. Who went on to say that, For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And it is this word that we have the privilege and the opportunity of studying this morning. Help us to hear it, and not just to hear it with our ears, but to hear it with our hearts. Prepare our hearts even now to receive the message from this episode in the life and ministry of Jesus as presented by the Apostle John. May it become like seed that was sown on good soil, bearing fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Enable us to avoid the distractions that prevent your word from becoming fruitful in our lives, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. Keep us from drifting into those old habits that suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And in the name of Jesus, we ask you to limit the blinding influence of the God of this world. Thank you for your loving kindnesses that never cease, for your compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Remember John chapter 9? Jesus had healed a man that had been born blind. The religious leaders of Judaism, unable to discredit this man or his story, threw him out of the synagogue. But Jesus found him and led him to a genuine saving faith. And that was not the end of the story. Because in John chapter 10, the story continues with Jesus seizing this teachable moment. He uses three pictures or figures of speech. Picture of a sheepfold, a sheep gate, and a good shepherd. He uses these three mental images from the world of shepherding sheep as visual aids to explain his ministry, what he was here to accomplish. Two months following that encounter, Jesus is once again walking in the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, he's walking through the Solomon's porch, which is located on the east side of the temple. And he found himself surrounded by a group of his opponents, the Jews. That's how the Apostle John often referred to Jesus' opposition. The same ones who in John chapter 7, verse 1, were seeking to kill him. You see, they wanted to somehow derail his ministry or turn the people against him. I guess we could say that these Jews were suffering from something similar to the Trump syndrome that we hear Fox News referring to. Only this one is the Jesus syndrome. And so at this point in the story, it seems fair to conclude that there's absolutely nothing Jesus could do or say that would somehow earn or win the respect or support of these entrenched Jews. Last week we considered how these Jews were losing as a result of their unbelief. Four things make them just losers. In fact, to use another Trumpism, big time. Unbelievers are losers big time for four reasons. Number one, they will always require more evidence. Enough will never be enough. They will always be able to justify their unbelief. Secondly, they do not belong to Jesus. Thirdly, they forfeit the benefits of belief, things like um, spiritual insight, that the ability to grasp spiritual reality, a personal relationship with God, eternal salvation, or assurance of salvation, all forfeited because of their unbelief. And fourthly, they are unable to accept the deity of Jesus Christ. Four reasons why unbelievers are losers. So last week, we left Jesus surrounded by this opposition. Stones in hand, it seems they were prepared to end his life on the spot. Look again at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. So try to picture this scene with your mind's eye. 
the Jews, stones in hand, have surrounded Jesus. Perhaps shoulder to shoulder. And they may even be jostling with one another in order to get a better shot at Jesus. Perhaps some were curious, wondering who in the world will throw the first stone. Can you see it? Look at their faces. This is not a friendly crowd. There's hate in their eyes. Eyes squinting, jaws set. Some are so angry, their faces are flushed, their nostrils are are flared. Testosterone is pumping through their veins. Now let me ask you, how would you respond? Try to put yourself in Jesus' shoes. How would you respond? Jesus' response to these hostile believers only served to confirm his deity. Jesus, facing hostile believers, puts his deity on display. And I admit, when I first began to study this passage of Scripture, the first thing that came to mind was that chorus, The Gambler. Remember that old song by Kenny Rogers? You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. So when I pictured this scene, Jesus surrounded by these hostile, stone-in-hand Jews, and tried to put myself in his shoes, that last option seemed the most attractive to me. Let's run. But that's not what Jesus did. That's not the option he chose. Jesus, facing hostile believers, chose to put his deity on display. Why? Because he wants unbelievers to become believers. Even hostile ones. Jesus wants us to believe him, to believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God. And that's why the Apostle John wrote this fourth account of the ministry and life of Jesus. There were already three written, but he sat down and wrote this account according to John chapter 20, verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. His account begins with these words, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 4, verse 14 of the same chapter, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. God dressed in human flesh, the deity of Jesus Christ. It means that he was fully God, 
and fully man. And rather than running, Jesus, in responding to hostile believers, displayed that deity. I think there are at least three ways that the deity of Jesus Christ is revealed in this exchange with hostile unbelievers. Firstly, Jesus displayed his deity by questioning their charge. Look at verses 32 and 33. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus is not asking this question for his benefit. Already in John chapter 2, we know that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men, for he knew what was in man. Later in John chapter 4, we hear the testimony of that Samaritan woman that he encountered at the well. Verse 28, so the woman left her water pot, went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that I have done. So Jesus wasn't asking this question for his benefit. He was forcing them to verbally articulate the charge against him. And the charge had nothing to do with good works. By the way, that word translated good works, that qualifier that John uses, is the same one that he used with the good shepherd. Remember that message on the good shepherd? Good is the Greek word kalos, which means magnificent, beautiful, noble, wonderful, praiseworthy. Who could deny the goodness of the good works that Jesus had performed? He saved a wedding celebration by turning water into wine, the best wine. He fed a, a hungry crowd of 20,000 20, people using just five barley loaves and two small fish. He'd healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. And he created new eyes for a man who had been born blind. And remember, folks, this is just a sampling of the many good works Jesus had already performed in two-plus years of public ministry. In fact, the Apostle, Paul, Apostle John wrote this confession near the end of his biographical account. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And then his gospel account concludes with this teaser. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. The end. 
the good works of Jesus were undeniable. In fact, the Jews appear to make that concession here in verse 33. The Jews answered him, For good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. These hostile Jews did not want to address the topic of good works. They knew that was a loser. And they would end up divided, debating and arguing about how in the world he was able to do what he did. But their charge was blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. How ironic is that? That they're charging him with making himself out to be something that he already is. They recognized his claim to deity, but they refused to believe him. As far as they were concerned, he could not be what he was claiming to be. Jesus' question pointed to his good works, the good works that put his deity on display. And these hostile Jews wanted desperately to avoid that discussion. The charge was blasphemy, making yourself out to be God. And yet, how in the world could he do otherwise? He was God dressed in human flesh, fully God and fully man. Jesus displayed his deity by questioning their charge. Secondly, he displayed his deity by correcting their misunderstanding. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So here's Jesus' argument in a nutshell. Number one, point one, you are charging me with blasphemy because I'm claiming to be the Son of God. Point two, yet your law, and that's a reference to the Old Testament scriptures, which the Jews understood to be the word of God, infallible, inerrant, authoritative. Look at verse, the end of verse 35, the parenthesis that John includes. And the scripture cannot be broken. Your law, that scripture that cannot be broken, refers to mere men as gods. The Hebrew word is Elohim. And Jesus actually references Psalm 82 in support of his argument. He could have also used Psalm 45, verse 6, or Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, or 22, verses 8 and 9. But Psalm 82 was what came to his mind at that moment. His point was that their sacred scriptures referred to mere men as gods. And here is the chapter and verse to prove it. Point three of Jesus' argument. Therefore, 
having been sanctified and sent into the world by the Father, referring to himself as the Son of God, not only does not meet the requirements of a charge of blasphemy, but is entirely appropriate for Jesus to make that claim. According to their scriptures, their own scriptures. Let's turn turn to Psalm 82 for a moment. In this psalm, the psalmist is picturing a court scene. And God is assembling the rulers in verse 1. These are people that he's appointed and empowered to be his representatives here on earth. They are rulers and authorities, maybe judges, literally strong ones, Elohims. A Hebrew word that is commonly, most commonly, used in the Old Testament to refer to God himself. But in this, in this psalm, God is reminding these Elohims, his representatives, that they too will one day be judged along with all the earth, according to verse 8. Arise, O God, and judge the earth. And so he's telling them, get your act together. Look at verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? You're going to be judged eventually. Let me begin reading with verse 6 here. I said, you are gods, Elohims, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men. And fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Now returning to John chapter 10, we can see that their charge of blasphemy should be thrown out. It's just another manifestation of the Jesus syndrome that has affected their minds and hearts of these hostile, stone-throwing, unbelieving Jews. Jesus completes his correction of their misunderstanding by returning once again to his good works. To dismiss his verbal claims is one thing, but to ignore his good works, Jesus appeals to them to consider his good works. Look at verse 37. If I, do, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. That's interesting. Jesus is saying, that his good works give his claims credibility. And we believe that here at TRCC. We believe the same thing. Celebration, demonstration, and proclamation. Proclaiming the gospel that is preceded by a credible, 
God-honoring life is difficult to dismiss. Jesus knew that. And I think that's, a, that's why he prayed the way he does in John chapter 17 when he prays for us. Listen to his words. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That kind of oneness, that kind of unity, helps unbelievers to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus displayed his deity by questioning their charge and by correcting their misunderstanding. Now look at verse 39 to 42. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And they went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed him there. You've got to know when to hold them, when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. Jesus didn't run, but he walked away. He walked away. How sad is that? But Jesus displayed his deity by avoiding their arrest. Reality, really, it's just another example of how unbelievers suppress the truth and unrighteousness, right? Romans chapter 1, verse 18. But Jesus eluded their grasp. That in itself is a display of deity. My goodness, how can a person surrounded by a group of stone in hand, religious zealots who have charged him with blasphemy, escape? He is either Houdini or the Son of God. But notice as Jesus retreats beyond the Jordan, he's really coming full circle, back to where it all began. Cynthia and I can relate to that journey. Back in 1982, me, a recent grad from Bible college, Barely back from our honeymoon, I started to serve as the associate pastor here in Woodstock, Ontario. And then, much to our surprise and delight, God in his grace and providence guided the leadership of TRCC to give us an opportunity to return to Woodstock some 35 years later to the city where we began. What a gift. Folks, we are so thankful 
to have this opportunity to be among you and serve alongside you. Thank you. For Jesus, the other side of the Jordan would have represented protection in a time of preparation, a place of safe retreat, a time for reflection. The next time he enters the city of Jerusalem, it will be on the colt of the donkey, the triumphal entry. It would mark the beginning of his final week prior to his crucifixion. It's only three or four months away, and he will breathe his last breath. The area Jesus retreated to was where John the Baptist had fulfilled his ministry as the forerunner. His message and ministry was simple and straightforward. He used the words of the prophet Isaiah to explain it. I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And then when confronted with the Pharisees, he responded, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Wow. John the Baptist may not have considered himself worthy to untie Jesus' sandals, but he had the unique privilege of baptizing him and then pointing him out as the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, leaving the hostile believers in his rearview mirror, returned to the place where he was baptized and then tested before entering his public ministry. I was over to visit Bernetta this past week. And uh, for those who not familiar who Bernetta is. She's the oldest living participant of this localized expression of the body of Christ. Known first as People's Church in her days, and then as Berean Bible Church, and now as the Rock Community Church. She laments not being able to be with us. Apparently the last time was back in February. Near the end of my visit with her, I wanted to share something from God's Word that would encourage her. And I was preparing for this morning, and so I turned to this passage of Scripture. The thing that strikes me is that although John the Baptist is no longer able to be involved in Jesus' ministry, He continued to influence people. Look at verse 41 again. Many came to him, to Jesus, and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Isn't that interesting? John the Baptist didn't have the advantage of signs or miraculous powers. All he had was a message, his words. 
and his integrity. And many believed in Jesus there. John the Baptist's influence, like a ripple effect, lived on. I was able to assure Bernetta this week that our influence continues in spite of our physical absence. Jesus displayed his deity not only by avoiding their rest, but continuing to have a fruitful ministry. And so in responding to unbelievers, Jesus displayed his deity by questioning their charge, correcting their misunderstanding, and avoiding their rest. The scriptures clearly affirm Jesus' deity. Let me share just a couple of examples. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Beginning at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. That's what we just celebrated a few moments ago at the Lord's Supper. The purification that Jesus made possible. He died for our sins. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And without the deity of Christ, we remain dead in our trespasses and sins. As we believe in him, place our trust in him alone, his righteousness becomes our righteousness, our sin becomes the sin that he died for at Calvary. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, another passage of scripture that clearly portrays the deity of Christ. Let me begin at verse 3. It sets it up so well. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul is instructing us, believers, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. My goodness, how in the world is that possible? Well, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not, equal, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. Find ourselves back at the Lord's Supper. One more takes place at Jesus' birth announcement in Matthew chapter 1. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We need to embrace the deity of Christ. And as we think about that, let me give just three quick, maybe, implications for your consideration. And there's all kinds of more. Like, you'll need to think through that, how that impacts your life personally. But let me give you some suggestions. Number one, we need to believe in Jesus that he is the Christ, the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If we're going to embrace the deity of Christ, we need to believe in him. Believe that he was who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. We need to believe that, with all of our hearts, repent of our sin, and believe. And then we embrace it by worshiping him as the Christ, the Son of God. Remember John chapter 9, verse 38, when Jesus took that formerly blind man who'd been put out of the synagogue and led him to a genuine saving faith, how did he respond in verse 38? And he worshiped him. It's almost a, a knee-jerk reaction. What comes naturally to someone who has become a brand new believer. Almost like an infant taking their first breath after birth. But what would that look like in terms of worshiping him beyond that initial response? Well, I would say that showing up here Sunday after Sunday for corporate worship is a great start. These times need to be a priority on your calendar. You need to be able to dismiss those kinds of great opportunities that will show up or if someone makes a better offer. These need to be a priority. Even when you don't feel like coming, you come to worship God. Corporate worship is so important. Then I would like to point to a favorite verse of mine in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to them all, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Deny yourself. That means giving up the leadership of your life, surrendering that leadership to Christ's lordship. He's going to be the boss. And he gives us the instruction through his word. So it's surrender, and then it's sacrifice. Take up your cross daily. And that cross is not the thing you hang around your neck. It's the thing that was on the hill 
that he died on. To take up that cross, it's a life of sacrifice. Day after day, daily, where you're going to make sacrifices for the benefit of others. And then finally, service. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. We're here not to be served, but to serve. That's how we worship. Thirdly, by following his example as you engage with unbelievers. Be courageous. Ask really good questions. Correct misunderstandings. Gently and with respect. And finally, be smart. Know when to walk away. Leave it for another day. But for goodness sakes, leave the light on and the door unlocked. Because we, know, we don't know when they're coming home, right? And they may come home. So be smart, be prepared to walk away, but leave the light on and the door unlocked. Let's pray. Father, you demonstrated your own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, a continuing reminder of your love, of Jesus' sacrifice, of where we have come from and even where we're going. Constant reminder. All because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Enable us to abide in him. And may this word abide in us this week, giving us courage, shaping our thinking and influencing our actions and reactions, our words and our deeds, so that we live lives that are pleasing to you and represent you well. Regardless of the circumstances we might find ourselves in, by the power of your spirit and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.